And so I've chosen today to begin a new series of teachings from the Gospel of John as we look afresh as Christians at Christ. And it's very important for Christians to emphasize grace. And so I've been in the Old Testament for more than a year and yet talked about grace and told you how the new covenant's different. But I want to absolutely, squarely, resolutely emphasize the doctrine of grace in our teaching on Sunday mornings as we, uh, as we, we learn uh, how to become the people that God truly wants us to be. So I have this quote that sometimes I like to share, and it looks like I left it on the pew. But it's this, it's this perspective that God has, you know, he's, he's, he's ultimately decided to, to relate to us through grace. And if you look at your Bible, um, I've given you guys a, a challenge. We have these blue sheets, and they're, they're out in the foyer in the corner of the bulletin board. It's reading through the New Testament uh, in, in 180 days or so. And if you start in July, even if you start right now and you start marking off the boxes and start reading a chapter to a day of the New Testament, it's, it's my challenge to you, and I've been reading through it too, and you can take it in any order you want, but the order here is Matthew. But it's a great thing to be reading through uh, the New Testament. So if you look at your Bible and you realize how much of this thing is Old Testament versus New Testament, the division is right there. A lot of it is Old Testament, and it's good. There's a lot of history. Uh, you know, I'm not ripping on the Old Testament at all. Mike and I were actually talking another day, a, a book that he's reading. Someone talked about how revolutionary the New Testament is, that, that the fact that we put it together with the Old Testament might be doing a disservice to the pure, powerful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because the New Testament is so different from the Old. Because in the Old Testament, you had to perform your way into approval uh, for, you know, to God's approval in many ways. If they disobeyed, then, then it was judgment and different things. Under the new covenant, Jesus took all of the punishment for sin on the cross at Calvary and all that is left for believers is blessing. All that is left is God's pleasure. All that is left positionally, he's already made up his mind that he's pleased with us because when he looks at you, he's looking at you through the prism of the Father's love for his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Bible, when it says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, you know, a lot of times we don't feel like God's pleased with us, but the fact is, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that he is pleased with us because the obedience of Christ has purchased the Father's pleasure for us. The obedience of Christ has purchased the joy of the Lord for us, which is our strength. The obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary has purchased for us the freedom that sets us free. And our struggle is that we doubt that we have the joy of the Lord. We doubt that he's pleased with us. We doubt that we can just live a free, uh, grace-filled life. And so, maybe by way, I didn't get around to the quote that I said I was gonna do, but this is the quote. Ned Erickson said this. He said, get to know Jesus well because the more that you know him, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll wanna follow him. And the more you'll become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you become yourself. And I believe that this is true, that what it means to be fully human is to look at Jesus and realize, wow, 
Look at the grace of this man, Jesus, who when a woman caught in adultery comes before Jesus, he says to those who are accusing her in John chapter 8, he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Because they'd catch someone and this is what they do. It was their method of execution. And it was the death penalty under the law, under the old covenant. And yet Jesus is writing in the dirt, in the dust, perhaps writing their own sins in the, in the dust. The Bible doesn't tell us, but he might have been. And they realize when they hear these words of Jesus, these grace-filled words of Jesus, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, they begin dropping their rocks. Beginning with the oldest first, which I think is very interesting. And they all leave. And then he says to the woman, just as I believe he speaks to us through his word, woman, where, and it's not just for women, but men also, but he says, where are your accusers? They're not here, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so by the grace of God, God is beckoning us to go and sin no more. And it is his grace which pushes away the old covenant with its accusation and the judgers and the haters and the expectations that even we might have upon ourselves and we walk with a new, fresh breath of air. Does anybody know what I'm saying this morning? So that's why I want to emphasize grace. There's a story attributed to President Ronald Reagan and it says that he learned the need for decision-making early in his life. An aunt had taken him to a cobbler to have a pair of shoes made for him. The shoemaker asked young Ronald Reagan, do you want a square toe or a round toe? Reagan hemmed and hawed and didn't make a decision, and the cobbler said, well, come back in a day or two and let me know what you want. A few days later, the shoemaker saw Reagan on the street and asked what he decided about the shoes. And the young boy, Ronald Reagan, answered, I still haven't made up my mind. And the cobbler said, very well. When Reagan received the shoes, he was shocked to see that one shoe was square and one shoe was round. And Reagan said this years later. He said, looking at those shoes every day taught me a lesson. If you don't make your decisions, somebody else will make them for you. We have to make the decision to live according to the decision that God's already made. And there are times as a Christian when we go to the Old Testament and we read about the failures of the Israelites or we read about you know, how they, they didn't have it together and they worshiped idols and they were exiled and judgment, and, and death, and punishment, and all these different things. And we might be tempted to think that, yes, God has told us about grace in the Lord Jesus. I'll say that that's the round shoe, but there's always the square shoe that follows, of course, where it's like, but if we don't perform quite well enough, then he's going to come down upon us in judgment. And we have this love mixed with fear, and we could have hate, mixed with compassion. We could have a mixture of different things, but God's not like that. He, the whole thing was pointing to the round shoe. He wanted them both to match, that, that Jesus is, is always loving, always compassionate, always gracious toward us, 
it's always the new covenant for the believer, and the, the old was pointing toward that. So that's why I want to begin a series where we talk about the new covenant, where we talk about grace, and realize that our identity being found in Christ is what sets us free, that we don't have to be afraid of God anymore. He's not upset with us. You need to receive him into your life if you've never done that. You need to see, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I want to follow you. You're my Lord, which means the boss, as well as my Savior, which means that you've redeemed me. But this idea sometimes that we have to work a little bit to become children of God, no, 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 that's wrong. If you're in Christ, you are a child of God, and God is working in you, and you actually add zilch, zero, zippo, nada, uh, zero, to the equation of God's work in your life. It's, Christ has done everything. At the cross, he spoke these words. He said, it is finished, tetelestai, which means the debt is paid. It'd be like we owed $100 billion to the Lord, and we're like, I'll try, Lord, to pay it back. He says, no, I'll cover it, and I'm gonna give you life abundant as well. And then later as a believer, after we've had all this incredible sin debt forgiven by the riches of his blood, which gave us the $100 billion, we're like, well, Lord, how about I add, I think I could add a couple thousand to it. Or maybe, how about a little down payment of 100? And we, we get into this type of thinking that God doesn't want us to think. He says, no, my bank account is now yours. You can draw from my riches. And so this idea of grace is what I want to talk to you about this morning. And my message is receiving grace upon grace. So if you can find in your Bibles, John chapter 1, verse 14 through 17, we're going to look at that scripture. But first, I want to define what grace is. I've already given you a little bit of an idea, but I really want to squarely tell you. Warren Worsby defined grace, which in the Greek New Testament, not, I'm not bringing this up to appear smart, but the word is charis. Now, you might have heard about people being charismatic meaning that they're, you know, outgoing, uh, uh, outgoing generally is how the world uses it. We kind of have our own definitions within the Christian church of charismatic, but it comes from the word charis, which means grace, and Warren Wiersbe defined it as this. He said, grace is God's favor and kindness bestowed on those who do not deserve it and cannot earn it. It reminds me of this new song. Uh, what's that song, Deanna? Do you know? I think those are part of the lyrics. Like, we, we don't deserve it and cannot earn it. Do you know? Yeah. One of the songs. Uh, is it Reckless Love? Yes. It's Reckless Love. You can look it up on YouTube. So God has this reckless love for us. Now, grace is also the power to live the life of Christ. He empowers us to live the life. And it's not work. It's the opposite of work. Grace is not earned or achieved. Grace is freely given as a gift. So it's not something that we work. It may lead, you know, God does his work in our life, which is a, we receive it by grace, but it's not something that we're working for. In other words, you've heard me say before, and I'll repeat it again because it bears repetition, we are believers. We are not achievers. God is the one who's achieving in the life of the believer the outworking of the life of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why it's important is because in the Bible, I'm not quite to John yet, but I'll give you this. Uh, this is the Passion Translation of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, 
where it says this, for it was only through this wonderful grace that we believed in him, being Christ. Nothing we did could ever earn this salvation, for it was the gracious gift from God that brought us to Christ. So no one will ever be able to boast, for salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. So we talk about being saved. Now being saved is in a judicial sense, if you were in a court of law, it's like being forgiven for the trespass, right? But it's also healing. If you're in a hospital, <coughs> excuse me, and all of us have woundedness in our life and sicknesses in our life, God heals us. He salves us. Salvation is like a salve where he's, he's binding up wounds and he's making us whole where we're fragmented or broken. So it's a very good thing. So we will go to John now. John 1.14. It says in the word, which the word is Jesus. He's the living word of God. He's the ultimate expression of, of God's revelation. So he's the word. And John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's telling us that he saw the glory of Jesus, and when he saw it, although he saw it all throughout Jesus' life, (coughs) pardon me, he's probably thinking about the Mount of Transfiguration, when if you haven't gone there, it's... uh, I'm thinking it's Matthew 16, 17, right in there. It's in other Gospels, too. I should know exactly. If you can think of it, I can find it for you later. But Jesus is on this mountaintop, and it says that he just all of a sudden begins brightly shining. And his clothes are brighter than even, you know, the best launderer could get white, incredible fabric that's been bleached. It's just amazing. (coughs) Excuse me. I apologize. But God bless Deanna for getting me these cough drops, I think. Was it you? (laughs) Ethel's rescued me before, too, so that I don't have to choke the whole time. So he saw glory, and he's describing Jesus as the living word of God. And Jesus is the one who fully reveals the Father to us. But he also says that the Son of God is full of grace and truth. Now think about it for a moment. Why do we need grace and truth? Any thoughts? I'll give you a thought, and then you can think about it. Scott Saul says this, Truth without grace is bullying and aggressive. Grace without truth is codependent and enabling. So your wife comes to you in the morning and Or let's say it's the evening, maybe you're going out for a nice dinner and she's got a new dress that she's got from somewhere and she says, honey, does this look good? And you tell her the truth. You tell her, that looks great, honey. You look spectacular. But you know, it's it's like there's always times in our life where you're like, well, do I tell the whole truth to my supervisor or do I tell the whole truth, you know, to someone that might not be is kind and so sometimes we might you know round out the edges or or do things that we know it's like well I kind of feel this way it's this idea that <coughs> I think we all know people in our lives where they might be truth tellers but boy are they obnoxious boy is it difficult to deal you know you know with just just pure unadult unadulterated truth at times where they see the world in a certain way 
The law is kind of like that, where the truth is this, you know, God's standards are this. But we oftentimes can't live up to the truth. <clears throat> Jesus said that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But it's the, tr- it's the grace that it empowers us to get there. It's, it's the power to live the Christ-like life. But we also know people who, they might be very grace-filled. We could be this way with our kids, where, where we might have high enough expectations of a child, and we, we just kind of coddle them and, and go along with them, you know, and enable them. But there's a time for all of us as the children of God to grow up, you know, with truth as well as grace. So do you understand this dynamic? Both are very important. I might not have communicated it very well, but we know that in Jesus we have grace as well as truth. You don't want to err on, in, on, on one side without the other, truth without grace or grace without truth. John 1, 16 and 17 says, For from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, grace and truth is the nature of Jesus. John is saying that through Jesus comes grace upon grace. Or literally, this phrase up here means grace instead of grace. In other words, when one grace runs out, God switches it out for another grace in order to sustain us. And I believe that there are times where in our life we might go through some difficulty and we might wonder, why am I going through this difficulty now? Perhaps it's an internal struggle or something where you're like, I thought I had this. I thought I understood, you know, God's grace or or his compassion or I, I thought I was better than this. And you might begin to struggle with a certain thing. And I kind of think it's like God swapping out one grace for another, where he's like, I carried you through that time. I just made it easy for a while for you. And now we're going to really work on it. We're going to apply some truth in your life where your character is going to grow, where maybe something is more of a challenge now that it wasn't in the past because his grace was so abundant. His grace was super abundant, and now he's going to give you the grace to let go of a certain sin or to let go of a certain mindset or habit or feeling of condemnation or whatever it is. And he has different types of grace in different seasons of life. Now, here's the cool thing. There's times where I go in life, we all have these ups and downs, right? God's grace is operative at all times, even when we don't recognize it or feel it or have those warm, fuzzy feelings. When the dishes are all piled up and dirty and you're like, how am I going to get to it? Or, or when there's uh, a scarcity in, in resources and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Or a relationship is all kinds of messed up and you're like, I don't know what to say. Or you've lost someone important in your life and, and there's just this incredible hole there that they had filled before. God is going to give you a grace instead of grace. See, it's not judgment instead of grace. It's not, oh, now you better, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. He is a God of all superabundant grace, and he's going to give you new dynamics of grace in your life. Does that make sense? He's got a new, whatever, however you think of it, a new batch of grace waiting for you today and a new one tomorrow. This grace now supersedes the law which was given through Moses. There are some good things about the law, the Torah of the Old Covenant. 
But because of our sin, the law only reveals how desperately we are in need of grace. And the new covenant through Jesus Christ provides that grace. And again, what's grace? It's that undeserved favor. I've heard people say the ac- an acrostic G-R-A-C-E for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's kind of a nice way to remember it. But I have a buddy who, if you ask him, how are you doing? He always will say, better than I deserve. God's grace toward us is always better than we deserve. It's always good, it's always kind, it's always loving, it's always spirit-filled, it's always revealing and truth, you know, truth-revealing. Jesus said that you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But praise God that we have grace as that truth sets us free. The Apostle Paul contrasts the Old Covenant with the New Covenant in some, some, in some surprising ways. So if I were to boil down the Old Covenant into one idea, I would say it's God's expectation or it's, it's, it's performance. The people really needed to perform. They needed to obey the law, okay? And the New Covenant, if I were to summarize it in a word, I would say it's grace. It's undeserved. It's, it's God's wonderful mercy, And so performance versus grace. Uh, When Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 contrasts the old with the new, he says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That's the end of that verse there. And as he goes on in this passage, he compares the old covenant as the ministry of death. And he also goes on in verse 7 through 9, In verse 9, he calls it the ministry of condemnation. He compares that with the new covenant, which is the ministry of the Spirit, as well as the ministry of righteousness. Now, what righteousness is, is in the Bible, also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that all things are made new, that we are new creations, and he says that we are now the righteousness of God in Christ, meaning that I'm the righteousness, you as a believer, you're the righteousness of God. What that means is that you are made right. There's something right about you. So we should not have, although we do, because we, are, we have some problems with our hardware, right, in our mind, or the software at least, how we process things, we always think about what's wrong. We always think about ourselves and what's guilty about us, what's dirty about us, what's broken about us, what's unhealed about us or wounded. And we tend to fixate on those things instead of celebrating what's right. Christ is for me, then who can be against me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He gave his own son, and he didn't withhold his son. He wants to give us all things along with Jesus. But our minds have this tendency toward gravitating toward the negative, complaining about life, rather than realizing that God's grace is operative in the times of the day as well as the week, the month, and the year when we don't feel so good about ourselves or other people or maybe you know, we might assume wrongly that God's not so keen on us. But God's grace is operative the whole time. He just looks at us and he sees that I'm pleased with my son here. I'm pleased with my daughter here. And we have to open ourselves up and realize that it's the ministry of the spirit that we focus on, the ministry of righteousness that God has done in our life. So Paul talks about how the trespass of Adam in Genesis, our first grandfather, Adam, introduced all of humanity to sin 
and that the law of Moses just exposed how blatant and obvious our sin is. He says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. Again, there's that rightness that God has purchased for us. We're now right with God. We're right with our neighbors. We're right with the world. We're right with ourselves. And by right with the world, I mean any circumstance that comes against us. Anything that we, we stumble into, fall into, come across, God is not going to let you be ultimately wounded or hurt. God is not going to let you ultimately be wounded or hurt by any relationship, by any problem, by any circumstance that you wander into. He knows what the solution to it is. And he's going to simply use that circumstance or those people or an internal growth in yourself to make you more mature in Christ, to make you more able to shake off the unrighteousness, to shake off the wrongness, to shake off the feelings of guilt and shame and, and all those different things and shake off the past. That's what he's doing in your life. He's making us more like Christ. He's giving us grace upon grace because he's taking us from glory to glory. It's the ministry of the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. There's freedom. And doesn't it feel good to be free of those different things? Guilt's the feeling, they say, that I've done wrong. But shame is the feeling that I am wrong. And God wants to forgive us to let go of that guilt where we know that I'm justified legally in his sight. But he also works upon the inner man, the inner woman to make us whole so that we are free from shame. Where we realize that now your relationship with God is characterized by him saying, nope, you're right. You are right with me. You are forgiven. You are whole. And we have to see ourselves as God sees us and not think that we somehow perform our way or behave our way into the kingdom. He's already done it. It's his work. It's finished. And we can now rest in him. Does this resound with anyone this morning? This is a word of grace. And the doctrine of grace is what I want to teach you beginning today. When you come across just truth without grace, it's kind of like the cops showing up at an accident. I've, I've shared this before. I think it's a fairly good illustration. And they want to know, okay, who ran into who? Uh, what's your license plate number? Let's see your insurance. And they're interested in the facts and nothing but the facts, ma'am. But grace shows up like a fire truck, like an ambulance. Who's hurt? How are we going to make them whole? What needs to be done? They're not so interested in who was wronged or who did the wronging. They're interested in making people whole, getting them to the hospital if they need. And who knows that the church is a community of people that together we are indeed a hospital. We are a place where people come to rest and to receive a message of grace and to experience healing from life's traumas. And we are charged by the Lord Jesus to create a culture of grace, a culture in which if someone doesn't deserve our unmerited favor, we can give it regardless because we've received from the Lord. And he said, freely you've received, now freely give. 
because sometimes we get into these trouble situations where it's like, oh, Lord, you know, I, I'm now convinced, I, I, I know because your spirit's revealed to me that I told a lie. Well, what do you do with that? There's two different things. You can go under the old way of thinking, the old covenant. You can say, by golly, I'm going to not lie anymore. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to work really, really hard at it. And that's the problem is I am going to work. I'm going to try. I'm going to attempt. That doesn't work in life. You have to say, God, and not trust in yourself. You have to say, God, I can see that I have a problem with lying here. I told a lie. I'm not operating in the truth. Please forgive me. And at that moment, you're forgiven. I'm forgiven. And then you say, and work on me, Lord, so that I grow in this area. And you're taking it to the Lord and trusting that he'll do a work in you rather than you doing it yourself. And this is so radical that we as believers, we can talk about grace again and again and again, and yet we often slide back into patterns of thinking and behaving that are are not graceful. They're not the new way of thinking that God wants us to. But here's a, here's a word about rest in Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews says this. He says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest. This is Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's a Sabbath rest for you, and this is it. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works which means, or her works, as God did from his. So resting in Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 is resting from your work, just like on the seventh day, God rested from his. He wasn't working on the seventh day, and now he's called us into the Sabbath day of rest in Christ where we don't have to work anymore at being approved by God. We don't have to work anymore at looking a certain way on Sunday. We don't have to work anymore at trying to be the type of person that somebody else or us or our parents or our spouse or an employer or the pastor or, you know, some person out there wants us to be. We're just set free to be who we are in Christ. In other words, you're not working anymore. You're not striving. You're not clawing at something you're set free. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I want to teach on grace. I want to help us together form a culture of grace in our families and as a church body in general. And we're going to read about stories of grace, like the story I told you about the woman caught in adultery. I think of another teaching of Jesus that we get in the New Covenant in Luke 15 where there's a father whose younger son says, I want my inheritance right now, which is kind of a way of saying, I wish dad were dead so that I could get my part, which we think was a third of the estate. And the father decides, I'll go ahead and sell a third of the estate then. And we'll sell off cattle and we'll sell off sheep and we'll do what needs to be done and cash out the son. And the son went into a Uh, far off country and he lived wildly for a period of time until all his money was spent the entire third of that father's estate and then he was feeding pigs doing labor and he got this idea in his mind and he said there are employees working for my dad there's there's slaves in my father's household servants who live better than I do now that I've 
prodigally wasted all that third of the estate. And so he went back to his father and, and had his story all set in his mind and you know, knew what he was going to say. He rehearsed it and he comes to the father and the father runs to him and embraces him. And then he tells his servants, he says, bring out the robe. And he puts his ring on his son's hand, and sandals, and, which means that he had the same authority, the same standing as his son now after his rebellion after his wasting the father's resources, he was received right back into the family, right back into the family business, as if he hadn't committed all those horrible, egregious sins. And this is the type of grace that we have, like the story of the prodigal son. This is the type of, of relationship that we now have with the father. There's not one human being, now this is kind of cool to think about, there's not one of us except Jesus, and we know he's... he's He's different from us, and yet God wants to make us just like him. But there's not one human being that we're going to go to and say, oh, you know, I wish I had it together like brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. All of us are those prodigals that have come back to the Father. Because no one's achieved it, right? No one's got it perfect. There isn't a perfect person. All of us are recipients of grace who have our sins forgiven in just that sort of way. And so may grace reign in your life. May you realize that God will give you a second chance, and he does today. And he'll give you a third chance and a fourth chance. And in, 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 in these chances that he's giving us to repent, which means to change our mind. And the whole thing is that he wants us to change our mind and realize that we're under a relationship of grace now, that he's working on the inside of us, and he wants to get his way on the inside and the outside will take care of itself if we surrender to the Lord on the inside. That's the work of grace.